Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. I'm delighted to be joined by Megan Haupt. Megan, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you. Megan, there's a fantastic thought-provoking question on your website that says, we work for one third of our lives. Aren't you ready to do something significant with that time? Now, I'm not sure we ever got asked that in school. So where did you come up with this thought-provoking question? I did the math and figured that between our schooling and then post-secondary school and then actually working, it really does take up about a third of our lives. And so if you're spending that much time preparing to work or actually working on some level, there has to be a certain amount of fulfillment. And I don't mean that you necessarily have to have a dream job because I don't believe in dream jobs in the same way that I don't believe in things like soulmates. That's for another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but just to frame it, um, I don't believe in things like dream jobs. I do believe that experiences provide you with opportunities for growth. And if you are not being provided with opportunities for growth in your work, then you're really just, you're not living at all. So, so you're enduring your work, perhaps, rather than enjoying. I mean, honestly, you could even say it's some sort of weird state of suspended animation just for <laughs> able to get a paycheck. Well, so... The difference between having a nine to five structured 40 hour quote unquote per week job and say working on your own as a consultant, running your own business is that you get to see how much time is just factored into a 40 hour per week job where you're just sitting there not doing really anything or even anything of value. There's work that's been sort of factored into the job description and the overall sort of job performance, but you're not, you're not actively working. And it wasn't until I started doing my own businesses that I actually started to think, oh my gosh, I've not paid for probably a good 60% of what it is that I actually do on a day-to-day basis as as someone who's an entrepreneur working for themselves. So I do think that in many ways you're in this sort of holding pattern in work. Uh, I actually started my first company um, back in 2005 because I was in a job that wasn't paying me enough money. And so I needed to bring in extra money and I was a seamstress. I had been a seamstress. So I just started this meetup group for seamstresses to be able to share jobs and resources. And I wound up actually running that company during the day at my work because I had gotten so good at my job when my job had never really grown in the years that I was in it, that I could finish that work before noon. And yet I'm still there for another five hours. So it had to look like I was actually working. So I would work on my other business sort of in the background without anyone. <laughs> no. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> 
fact of that, that actually more than 50% of your workday was unproductive for the company you were employed by, at least. Yeah. I mean, I do think that that has changed somewhat, and it certainly depends on the type of role that you fill in a company. But if you're sort of not not in a leadership role or not in a very hands-on sort of role, you probably are spending a portion of your day being unproductive. But I have to say that, you know, post 2008, and this will probably come up again in our conversations, but after 2008, when a significant portion of our population, the United States lost their jobs, I think it was almost up to the, it was definitely double digits and it might've been almost close to 20% plus, that they then fired people, those people never came back and work was condensed. So you would take three positions and condense it into one. And now you have these jobs that's almost impossible to not be productive. You're constantly doing stuff, but then you have to ask yourself, are you actually being productive? Like, are you getting work done? Is the work being distributed equally? Does it make sense to kind of condense these positions like this? But that's sort of where we are modern work-wise. But also there's still the question of, are you growing in that job? Oh yeah, for sure not. So we talk about things like Frankenstein jobs, meaning that jobs, <laughs> jobs are not designed to provide you with certainly a salary increase. Salaries have been flat for a long time now. They're not designed to provide you with any sort of larger skills acquisition, upward mobility within the company. So I usually talk to clients because they find that they run to this place of stagnation after usually about five years. And then they have a really hard time articulating what it was exactly that they did in that position. So a lot of times clients come to me because their stories are sort of so convoluted that they have a really hard time articulating that into a clear narrative that they can then sell to another employer. And so because these jobs are not designed for that, you know, you're going to start to see a lot more transitions between different jobs. So your ability to get more money to do different things, to acquire new skill sets are usually found when you leave and go to another job. Another organization even. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, you might be able to find different jobs within the company, but more often than not, it's usually somebody leaving that company and going to another company. Megan, I know you do some work with people on their CVs and so on, but what I'm really interested in hearing about is the work you do on people's career story. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what is a career story? Sure. So, um, you know, I got my start working in career services for a for-profit education company in 2008, which was really the best time to be able to find people jobs is when the market is completely trashed. But it was sort of good trial by fire and you become very skilled. And so in many ways, I was sort of a glorified recruiter, meaning that my job depended on how many students I was able to place post-graduation. And so I got really good very quickly at doing people's resumes and writing them in a way that can get them at least a foot in the door so that they can interview, right? And then you have to work with that particular student to make sure that then they have the tools to interview to potentially land the job. So being able to craft a resume that sort of hacks the process is one thing. And you have a lot of people who work in the field of resume writing who will do that, who are very skilled at kind of keyword placement and figuring out the titles and, and sort of you know being able Matching. to get- yeah, an applicant tracking system and make it through. Because really only, I think, something like 10% of applicants actually even make it through the first round of an applicant tracking system. Whoa. Yeah, so those are some pretty crazy statistics. When you have most people who believe that they can successfully compete for a job in an environment that is 
for the most part, almost entirely automated. And it's depending on algorithms designed by people looking for very specific things. And so people spend all this time crafting these stories and it doesn't matter if your resume can't get through the system. So I have this background in resume writing. I understand it inherently. I'm not a big fan of resume writing. I think it is an outdated model. I think it, you know, to go back to that 2008 thought, you cannot, you have a really hard time articulating modern day jobs in a, in a sort of old form format, like a resume. And how do you tell that story? So the whole career storytelling started as an exercise to help people write their professional summaries. Mm. So I don't, you know, the structure of a US resume is contact information, professional summary, a list of skills, your experience, and then where you went to school. It's a pretty bare bones document. And the professional summary <clears throat> is difficult because it's in many ways, if you're, whether you're going through a system or having a human reader, you know, they kind of figured it out that human readers take less than seven seconds to scan through a resume to be able to pull out the information that they need. So more times than not, they may not actually be reading a professional summary. And professional summaries in general tend to be these sort of really abstract statements people make about themselves based off of their skills and interests and then super heavy on the marketing jargon. So when you read it, it makes no sense whatsoever. There's no sort of connection to the human being. It could be anybody. And so I started, I'm like, well, let's try to find a way where we can actually write these professional summaries that relate to the human being on this piece of paper. And so we started this backwards approach where I had people just sort of write however they wished their story, um, how they got into where they were professionally. And I've had people send me over like 11 pages worth of copy. Since I have no guidelines around that, I'm like, I don't care. I'm not looking at your writing. I'm not interested in how kind of great of a storyteller you are. I just literally want to know your story. I've had people who've just sent it over to me when it's just their work. I've had people go all the way back to childhood. It's interesting because most of the people who tend to go back to childhood are women. And most of the people who start at either school or work are men. This is just sort of an observation that I've made. And I'm kind of curious and I'm sort of keeping an eye open to think like, what does this look like? And I'll keep watching it. But so this backward storytelling just started as that, as, as a way to be able to tell a, a better professional summary. And what I found was going through these stories that we actually had a really just really wonderful, productive conversations. And I was like, well, what if I can apply this to the entire resume itself? And so then I started doing that. And what I did when I, when I looked through these stories is I just start very, very early on, I just take their raw text and I pull out highlights. So they might include a bunch of things about you know, their personal lives. And I find that interesting as a reader, but to reflect that back to them from a professional standpoint, because I'm not a therapist, I'm only looking for their work highlights, but I'm keeping in the back of my mind what that might mean elsewhere. And so I pull out the highlights and then I start to look for patterns. And then I use the highlights and patterns to ask questions. And then these are the guiding questions that we use to move forward. And what we found was that you were able to get insights that clients have come back to me and said, you know, I, I have never been able to think of myself in these terms. I kind of inherently understood myself, but I've never been able to articulate it. I don't think that if someone repeated that back to me, just randomly that I would feel comfortable with them saying that, but it, it, it's, it's pretty astounding. And so we do this story work. And again, it's sort of sold to people who are interested in career development. I have not really done it with a hardcore type A plus someone who is externally motivated as opposed to someone who's internally motivated. Most of the people who go through this process are generally internally motivated, but they are still very driven people. So they like this process. And so that's really how we got to the heart of it. And so I can imagine for LinkedIn, this is very useful as well, because on this side of the water, our CVs tend to be a bit longer. 
you know, we tend to go for two pages, but it's still the professional summary is much like what you describe, I think. But on LinkedIn, you've got this room to write your about summary, which right. gives you a lot of leeway to sell yourself, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So like LinkedIn page optimization is a huge thing. I am I have a love hate relationship with LinkedIn. I think it's <laughs> a highly imperfect tool, but it's the only game in town. So you have to learn how to play well with it. So the idea of LinkedIn op- optimization is really helpful for job seekers because one, there are many jobs that never make it onto job boards. I think something like in this country, almost as much as at any given time, 65%, which is a crazy number, but that's been repeated in numerous spaces, as much as 65% of jobs don't even actually make it into the job board. And then LinkedIn has been used uh, by hiring managers to sort of post. So sometimes a really cool LinkedIn trick, if you're interested in a company, one, you should always find out who the hiring manager is for any given position, because you want to be able to start kind of crafting this conversation that you're having with that person in mind. But you can put such and such company, I'm hiring or we're hiring in the search bar in LinkedIn. And sometimes it will pull up hiring managers for positions that you're looking for. And that's an opportunity for you to have a conversation with that person directly. So a lot of what we kind of coach clients around is to be able to make sure that this conversation isn't just taking place in the form of this kind of, you know, really contain sterilized online application that you're actually taking it out into the real world. In the United States, resumes only go up to 10 years, right? Mm. So we're not going to go all the way back to Mm. our very first. So we try to keep it within a 10-year span. We used to be really hardcore about making sure that it was one page. Now it's okay for you to have multiple pages as long as the content is strong. But LinkedIn can be an entire collection of your history. I mean, I have my internships up there when I was still working in theater. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to come out for a while I was just putting, I was graduated from the School of Communications because theater wasn't really an attribute to anything that I was looking for. So finally, I guess sort of came out and was like, okay, I do have a theater degree. I'm gonna put, <laughs> because my through line is storytelling and it makes more sense actually if people know that I came from a theater background. Absolutely. So maybe with the storytelling, Megan, I mean, the story has elements to it. So what do you, get people to think about because you said you let them write for themselves but do you give them guidelines or how do you draw the strands together in terms of guidelines it, it is very open and I ask them to just sort of share the story in a in a way that is comfortable to them to include elements whatever they feel comfortable in terms of how they feel that that either impacted their career or shaped their career good or bad in some way you will see instances where people will include lots of personal information, you know, about how that shaped their lives. I have to be very clear because I don't have a background in counseling. And I think that there's a lot of unfortunate bleed in the space of coaching where people act in roles that they are not qualified to do so. And so I'm very clear about the fact like, hey, thank you for feeling comfortable enough to share that with me. Um, What we're we're looking for this, we're looking at your professional highlights. Like I will take that information and I will listen to it and I will factor that into that process, but I am purely just for the most part looking at your trajectory. And I can understand how we were as children in many ways shape how we behave in the workplace. And so, um, so when someone does take the time to share their early, early story with me, I will again, take that into consideration and I'll factor that in, but I really do try to stay in my lane and make it very career oriented. Do people figure out what kind of career they want from this story or do they come to you already knowing what they're targeting? 
Um, it's a mixed bag. There's a lot of people with very nonlinear careers at this point. I should point that out. That's a pretty modern occurrence where people are like, I started off here and now I ended up here. So you'll have people who have, again, that type A minus who is someone who is guided by the experience, not necessarily external rewards, who are like, I am able to do this in this space. I've been able to do this in this space, but I have no idea how to connect those two things together. So they're not necessarily saying, I need to have such and such job. They will say, I need to be working in a space where all of the skills and the things that make me happy are being applied. I'm not necessarily tied to a specific. I had a client recently who got her start. I think her background was in classical studies. And then she got a, a master's in counseling for students in education. And then she was working in higher ed for a while and then went to go work for a science museum and worked there for years and loved it. And now she's back in higher ed again, but in a totally different capacity that she had been in before. So she recognized that she didn't have to be tied into specific things, that the stuff that we pulled out from her story was more of a framework that she could then apply to different areas. So again, I really do attract more of the type A minuses than I do the type A pluses. I don't know how a type A plus would respond to that kind of storytelling. It may not be comfortable for them. It may not be a good fit. It would be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. So many organizations will, uh, and individuals indeed, would invest in doing maybe disc profiling or Myers-Briggs or something like that to help them identify, I guess, what you're talking about, their strengths, where they might belong, what they can look for. So what do you think of those tools? So I actually took, this was just happened to be coincidental. I was signed up for my college. They were offering free coaching around the Gallup index. And I remember taking that about 10 years ago and I didn't remember anything specific about it. And I was like, oh, I'll take it again. I'm just curious to see how they lead this coaching session. So I'm actually just kind of acting as a spy. I'm taking it and then I'm going to go in and sit and see how they apply it. And so I took the Gallup index. So it's set up in a scale of five and you have one option or other options, sort of like black, white, do you fall in the middle? And more than 75% of the time I said that I fell, I fell in the middle. And then of course, what my index was afterwards was based off of the answers that did fall into one side or the other. And I was like, well, what about all of those 75% where I just was smack dab in the middle? You know. And so the stuff that came up for this particular time that I took, it was completely different than what I took it 10 years ago. And so people change. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of criticisms around things like Myers-Briggs because it it doesn't have science that bears it out. And the science that supports it is actually foundations that were set up by Myers-Briggs. So um, (laughs) there's a little bit of bias there. I understand companies trying to do things like that in an HR capacity in order to be able to deal with a large pool of people. But in a one-on-one situation with coaching, I have, oh, and I'm, this is going to not go over well with a lot of coaches because there are so many coaches who love Myers-Briggs and those types of tests. But I have found that, that that type of coaching leads to sort of not necessarily great outcomes for the clients. And personally, I think it's a very lazy approach to coaching. I'm just going to put that out there and say that. <laughs> say it as it, as it is, absolutely. What happens then with the the client. You gather their story and then you said you pull bits out and put it into their CV, but how do you then craft that story with them and get them to understand their identity as well? 
So here's an interesting thing to note between the difference of say using a personality test or a type index versus actual one-on-one -on -one storytelling with somebody. I get this list and I'm happy to share that with you afterwards. I don't really care about the findings. <laughs> It's nothing groundbreaking. Um, but so the stuff that comes up is like, you're an idea person. You like to think about the future. Here's some areas that you might be interested in. Whereas when you go through somebody's story, you can actually put that back into specific areas. So a client that I had recently, she comes from a family of two educators. And so she swore that she was never gonna go into education, instead went into the sciences, but then found herself in education. But her career has always been a sort of, as far as a modern day career has been a very linear progression, which is unusual. And she's like, I don't know where to go next. I don't know what to do with this. And I said, well, when we look at your story, actually all of the jobs that you've held and the experiences that have gotten you from job to job are not linear at all. And there's many different ways of being able to approach this. So you have already, clearly shown that you're comfortable in non-linear spaces, learning as you go along, getting information from other sources, bringing it back and trying it out. So while your career on paper looks very linear, when we dive into the story details, you're not very linear at all. And you actually are, are okay with that. So our, our work together has been trying to help her feel comfortable in spaces that are sort of like new territory for her. And then also to figure out how her experiences can be crafted into a story that can then lead her into finding other opportunities. So we've sat down and we created a keywords list based off of her story. So I pull keywords out of the copy. So the process is they write a giant story to me. I pull out highlights and create a bunch of questions. Then we go to the next level. So our, our next session then would be spent <clears throat> going through the story. I walk them through the abbreviated story and I point out specific things. Like I have questions here, like, hey, have you considered this? What was going on with you here? I don't understand why this switch occurred here to kind of have them help me walk through that. And then I take that and I create a list of keywords they can use to describe themselves in any given situation. And then we talk about things like observations. So, hey, this has come up for you multiple times as a pattern. This is something that you might be thinking about as you're moving forward. And in addition to the story work, it has to be tied to a tangible deliverable, right? You know, the life coaching space has really sort of cut into the career coaching and other forms of coaching mm -hmm. space in, you know, a crazy way. And I'm hoping that maybe that fad will die out. But recently on a, a Facebook group in our area, someone said, I'm a Reiki healer and I, I do astrology and tarot cards. And now I'm getting into helping people with their careers. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like, of course that's happening. So I have to have like a tangible goal to it. Otherwise I'm that woman, right? I'm, I'm, I might as well be reading your tea leaves at that point. So there <laughs> has to be a tangible outcome to this. And so people can apply this story to things like their resume and their LinkedIn profile. They can apply it to things like interviewing. They can apply it to any forms of professional communication, or they can apply it to thinking about next steps for themselves. So it's this process, and then we have tangible outcomes. Because otherwise, if it's just a process, it might as well be like a Myers-Briggs thing. There's nothing concrete that you can tie it into. So we get the keywords. They can use that to describe themselves. The observations are things like, hey, this comes up for you a lot. You probably should be thinking about this on some level also offers opportunities for me for additional coaching. Like, hey, you want to work on this? Come back to me. And then considerations are always tied into the specific goals that they have. So if it relates to their resume or if it leads to their, you know, job searching, there always has to be that kind of like finality. And then I include SEO topics because 
again, I'm a big believer in sort of authentic content and we all have to be these sort of content producers now. And Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, that's very intimidating, especially people who don't like to put themselves out there in that context or not naturally extroverted in that space, or just don't feel comfortable writing or telling their story in general. Now that you have your story nailed down, right? Here's some topics that we can start to have you gain more visibility in spaces like Twitter or uh, LinkedIn Profinder. And based off of SEO, these are things where it's going to get you a wider viewpoint. You're going to have more eyes on your content if you use these hashtags, but then be thoughtful about how you actually turn that into authentic content. Because I'm sure you can see, being on LinkedIn, how much of it is just regurgitated content or meaningless drivel that's just posted as a way of boosting somebody's profile yes and i'm not interested in engaging (laughs) no me either me either and it sometimes it's really difficult to to kind of clear the mud and see the interesting posts yeah yeah Um, you have to go out of your but that's fascinating i think about the story work for interviews because often when you are in a job interview you're presented with the question give us an example of when something like this worked for you or when you addressed something like that and you might come up with something that doesn't really help you but if you've given thought to it through a process with someone like you then you've kind of got a story bank yeah so if you have clarity around your story it's really helpful then to apply to, you know, specific interviewing techniques like the STAR method, which is a form of behavioral interviewing, you know, listing a situation, task, action, result, or sort of if there's kind of another form of behavioral interviewing. Most people get tripped up on the behavioral interviewing. It's easy enough to be able to perform for a specific job description, but when you have to start talking about yourself or giving up examples, they want to be able to get a sense of you. And that's really hard to do in that sort of an artificial environment. You know, most people treat interviews like performances because they're coming in and they're performing for a specific job. But the problem is, is that the job pool is so huge that if you treat it like a performance, there's inevitably going to be somebody out there who's just better at performing than you. Yeah. And I've had, I've had clients who are extreme introverts and interviewing is difficult for them. Yeah, um, They're not particularly skilled at storytelling. They may take a very long time to get to a point, but if you sit with them and you're present with them, they actually really deliver quite profound answers, but it just takes them a while to get there. So in this space where you're supposed to perform, 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 these people are not gonna be doing particularly well. So having a, a strong sense of your story to be able to share it in that, in that context is huge. The performance versus conversation is really, I think, the big part, you know, sort of like superstar level interviewing skills are actually conversations. They're not performances, but most of us don't feel comfortable enough in that environment to be able to actually have a conversation. My goal when people come to me for interviewing is how can I get you to have a conversation with these people? Wow. But are interviewers able to have conversations as well? I mean, it doesn't work both ways. Yeah, of course. So usually if you're in a job that sort of requires like warm bodies, you're not having conversations. But since so much of our work is knowledge-based, you have to have people who are able to have higher level conversations. And that's where performance fails people. And so typically you'll interview at least with three or four different people. You're not going to connect and have a conversation with every one of those people. If you do, you're probably... I don't know, sociopath, (laughs) you're able to 
sort of perform and be that person that they need to be, but you're not a genuine person. You're not going to have a conversation with everybody involved, but with the people who matter, who are going to be the people that you're working with directly, you need to be able to have a conversation with them for many reasons. Not only do they need to be able to see who you are, but you as the interviewer need to be able to figure out by listening to them, where are some red flags? Inevitably, red flags always pop up in interviews and you have to be aware of them because you're going to encounter them down the road. And that's happened to me multiple times because I have a performance background. I can actually go into an interview and perform really, really well. But there have been times where I've ignored red flags and it's always come back to bite me. Always. It's fascinating, isn't it? One of the things that I often ask people is about work-life balance. So when people come to you, Megan, is that something that they're interested in? But also one of my guests once said to me that they feel you can't grow if you're in balance. So do a lot of our stories maybe come from difficult times also? And I know that's quite a long question. No, no, no. That's a really, that's a really good question, actually. Yeah, growth for a lot of people tends to come from a place of um, imbalance. Being yeah, and being imbalanced, sort of trying to find that out. Work-life balance in that respect, then, you know, you're constantly looking for opportunities of growth. And I think one of the things that is interesting to me that we're starting to see normal people do this more is that people who are going to remain vibrant in their lives are doing so because they're constantly putting themselves in a place where they have to grow. And, I, and your, your balance then is not necessarily removing yourself from that place, but finding a place where you're not growing with huge consequences attached to it. Like, oh, my body has given out because now I have like chronic pain from being so stressed out and unbalanced. You know, you can put yourself into positions where you're being challenged and in, and in a really ideal state, that's where you want to be, but have it where it doesn't come with such negative consequences. Oh, I really like that. That makes a lot of sense because you don't need to be constantly everything doesn't need to be wrong no. to grow. <laughs> right, right. But to your point, like there are plenty of people sort of operate in this space where they're not growing at all, but they're totally fine with that. They're totally fine with that. There are plenty of people who are totally fine with never growing. And then they're usually forced to have to make some sort of decision down the road because that non-growth has led to, you know, possible negative outcomes. But I'm sure there are probably people who have gotten through life with never growing, totally happy and have died peaceful lives, you know? It's, uh, it's hard to say. I think that people who tend to want to grow are thinking about these things, but there are plenty of people who don't want to grow at all. Mm, yeah, well, I, I hope they're happy because I think that's, if you're happy, then yeah. you just, yeah. And maybe you're growing in other ways. Yeah, maybe, maybe. You know, we- you're expanding your knowledge about nature or whatever. People have all sorts of things that, that I suppose bring them joy. Yep, yeah. And yeah. for a lot of us, it's back to that third of your life is at work. So let's find something that brings us joy while we're at work. Yeah. So for some people, that is work-life balance. For some people, that is being able to sleep at night without having to think about their jobs. For some people, that is being constantly moving forward. You know. And so for me, someone who's constantly enjoys moving forward, a balance for me would be able to find ways where I'm not feeling compelled to work all the time. Mm-hmm. That compulsion to work all the time comes from me, not from anybody else. And when I've been in jobs where there was that need to work all the time, I was miserable. So how do you find that within yourself? And how do you then strike a balance? Mm. Plenty to think about. And what about other types of stories, Megan? 
So if you've had really crap experiences, bad bosses, Mm. what do you do with those stories? So sometimes you have to extricate those and kind of create that as like a separate narrative, recognizing that, of course, it does obviously affect the story as a whole, but that sort of requires its own exploration. And so I've had clients come in, a lot of clients that have come in with negative experiences. And usually they have a problem of letting that go for good reason. The brain is designed to hold on to things like, hey, remember when you touched that stove and it burned your hand? It's sort of like, remember when you had that horrible boss and she did this to you? So it's the same thing. So we've done exploratory work and I'm actually looking to build out something around negative work environments, toxic bosses. Uh, because there's a lot of them out there. There's a, there's a lot of people who have no business managing other human beings and they're put into positions of power and you're like, oh my God, how did you even get here? So we've all been through that and it's a means of being able to let that go and using storytelling as a way to kind of explore that is really interesting. So there, I have a, a number of those in my work life and I'm in the process of starting to draft up one that isn't isn't the most painful, but it's one where I feel like I, a lot of the themes repeat themselves. So these themes that you see in, in our toxic work environments, they may repeat themselves in other aspects of your life. You know, I'm not saying that you know, you're deserving of that or you're a victim of those circumstances, but we tend to sometimes regurgitate similar themes throughout our lives and storytelling. So we're doing a program that we're calling Bad Boss Exorcism. Oh That's my God, it's <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, writing process where it's it's kind of combining the horror genre so telling your bad boss exorcism because inevitably when you ask somebody like oh have you ever read a bad boss you're like oh i have horror stories to tell you now everyone has a horror story to tell you about work and i I don't think that it's a you know it's coincidental that they happen to choose the term horror that it's this cautionary tale that this idea that you kind of are in this space to learn from it but then how do you let that go right? How do you help the brain to let that go to move forward to recognize your possible role in it or not possible role in it, or understand certain aspects about your boss so that you have a lessons learned at the end of it. So you can explore this storytelling in a kind of fun way. And then you create a lessons learned doc that you can take with you afterwards. So. Brilliant. That sounds like it could be a fascinating book. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I mean, people would pay to read these horrible boss stories because. I know, I would think so. Yeah. It's sort of like kind of doom scrolling where you look. (laughs) And you read through stuff and you're like, oh my God, that is horrible. Somebody will submit 50 terrible boss stories where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe these things happen. And they do. Yeah. But I, again, have to be really careful because there are plenty of bad boss stories that actually go into legal territory. Like my last bad boss story, there was definite uh, legal issues that I absolutely am not at all qualified to touch. So going into that, I'm like, here's the things we can't talk about. And here's two resources that I can send you to if you happen to fall into that category. So what about people who feel maybe, Megan, that storytelling is too creative for them and they're not creative and this doesn't make any sense because it's just much easier to stay with a CV? Yeah, so you're starting to see a lot of, I would almost, I don't know if I would say it's generational gap. But I think that you see older generations who are still in the workplace, who still think that as long as you create a solid resume, you stand a solid chance of landing a job. And that is simply not the case. You have to be able to articulate your story in a way that makes sense to that employer and makes them want you. 
That's what it comes down to. And younger generations get that because they've had this experience of widespread storytelling throughout their lives, of diversity of storytelling. I have had clients who feel bad that they, they know that they're just not creative people. They're not. And they're, they're in, the re- in the other parts of their lives, they're totally fine with that. But when it comes to things like work, they feel that there's a deficit in them because they're not creative. But yet they have other things to be able to give back to the workplace. It's just in a knowledge economy, not being creative is seen as a liability. And to be honest with you, after working at a for-profit educational institution that was arts-based, the idea that everyone can be creative is simply not true. There <laughs> are plenty of people who are not creative, and that is 100% okay. So I had a client who was two years younger than I was. She'd been in the family business and was now leaving the family business and going into the workplace. And we were trying to get her to tell her story. And she got very upset. And she's like, I'm not creative at all. And I said, you know what? That's okay for you coming to work with me and sitting down and being open to talk about these things shows to me a level of courage and curiosity that I think is more important than creativity. Creativity in in many ways tends to be very individualized. And it's, it's about specific results tied to that person. But curiosity is really an opportunity to be able to open up to a wider range of ideas. And I, I know I genuinely would prefer to live in a world where the majority of the population is, is open and curious and only a very small percentage of people can legitimately call themselves creative. Because I mean, all you have to do is go to any of these sort of like streaming subscriber things, Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, and there's like one gem and just hundreds of pieces of crap. And you love the one gem, you know, and then you suffer through the crap. And, and everybody's gem is different. Oh, yeah. I've been seeing some good gems lately. Yeah. But, but I think curiosity as well plays to storytelling because it's about getting curious about yourself, isn't it? Rather than being creative, because actually right. you're not creating your life story. You're, you're looking at, you've done it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, you're looking backwards and you're, and you're being open-minded about how this sort of plays together and you're being okay in a space. So I give a lot of my clients very much credit when they come into the space and they're like, okay, I'm gonna be okay to just sit here with you to do this. And there's been some really tough questions that come up for clients, like really tough questions. And the fact that they can sit there and sort of be okay with that to me makes me like, wow, that's, that is a quality that I wish to see in a lot of people. And I'm glad that you possess that. That's, and it's a quality that any employer really should be really happy to have. You like to think. Yeah, you like to think. <laughs> it's really, it's really again, it, again, it goes back to the employer. Does the employer want somebody to be creative? But here's the thing. I mean, the pandemic has really shown that the old ways of working are just simply not working. And whenever someone says, I can't wait till life gets back to normal, that <laughs> meme that's going around with Leo DiCaprio, where he's that, sitting there like, <laughs> yeah, where you're like, just sort of like chuckling to yourself because it's not working. And there's many things that we will not be able to get back to. And if you insist upon trying to get back to old things and not have people who are curious, businesses are going to fail. And we're already seeing businesses across the spectrum fail. If you're not open and curious to how to create new solutions, you will die. So it is to your benefit to want to have curious employees, but then you're going to have to structure your management to support that. 
And also employees who understand their story so they can bring their best bits to work. Yeah, totally. Cool. Yeah. Well, Megan, that's been really, really interesting. And we're, we're out of time, believe it or All not. Right. <laughs> How does someone... I have a website. I have a Facebook page, which I've been neglecting. So you are welcome to check out little bits of content that I just sort of spit out that is not mine, just reshared. But my website is www.briocareer, all one word, dot com. So brio, B-R-I-O, career.com. And then the Facebook page is also under Brio Career. So down the road, looking to start up classes open to the public, or if you want to just have a conversation about storytelling, I always offer free consultations. People can chat with me for about half an hour, use that to pick my brain, learn more about storytelling, how it can work for you, is it for you? Um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you for brilliant. Well, I'll put those links in the show notes as well, Megan. And, uh, do you want me to show books that, oh, I can't show you. Oh, you can show me the book, but if you've got any great book recommendations, we can put them in the. Yeah. Right now, how to future leading and sense-making in an age of hyper change by Scott Smith with Madeline Ashby. They both run a, um, company called changest. Um, wow. That looks, it's really interesting. I was listening to a podcast about your future self and how you get the clues from your past to your future self, which really ties in very well with what you're saying. Yeah, send that to me. Yeah, I will. I will. And then uh, storytelling sociology, narrative is social inquiry. I'm a huge fan of this journal that's coming out, it's on design, all forms of design and social equality. Deem. Deem. Mm-hmm. This is a really beautiful storytelling journal. It's, I feel like any print publication at this point is a labor of love, but this is Whetstone and it is a collection of diverse voices in food. And then with the food work that I do, I know we didn't get a chance to talk about that, but I'm also reading a report on the business value of autonomous mobile robots in <laughs> COVID-19. And that's tied into the work that I do with my other business, which is food education. Yes, which maybe we'll talk about some other time, Megan, but not today, unfortunately. So thank you so much for making time to talk to us. Yeah, this was great. Um, I, I hope people get some inspiration for their careers. Yeah, reach out. I'd love to have a conversation with anybody about story time. It's literally my favorite thing to do. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers. <laughs>